We are in Colossians today. If you are new with us, welcome. My name is Ryan and I'm your pastor. We are glad you are here. We are currently moving through the book of Colossians in a series we've entitled Free at Last. And today is actually a very pivotal moment in the book of Colossians because we're finishing chapter 2. And God does some pretty cool things with his words. Not only does he give us good words to live by and point us toward Jesus, but even the way he arranges the words are very important for us. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And before we do, let's pray and we will jump into Colossians chapter 2. Father, I thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy in our lives. I pray that you would open up your word to our hearts and minds today, that you would change us, transform us, encourage us, that you would lift up those who are down and discouraged, that you would comfort those who are sad and depressed, that you would be there for those who are under massive amounts of stress and for those who are just running through the the regular day-to-day of life that you would inspire, that you would send us into a glorious mission of pushing back the darkness in this world, of making an impact in the lives of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23 is where we're going to be. And what I love about the Bible is that, not, like I said, not only is it the words, but it's the way God arranges it. So we've done a little bit of this for all of you English nerds in here. If you're new, um, just sort of roll with it. Uh, First, we have what the Bible calls, or what we call indicatives. This is what Jesus has done for us. And in all of the letters in the New Testament, it's always about what Jesus does first before what we are called to do. So Jesus died for our sins, sets us free, and then in light of that, we are called to live a certain way. And today, we're really going to look at how often we get that concept backwards. How often we think Christianity is about what we do more so than what Jesus has done. So that's the verses today. Um, And it's, before we read it, it's like parenting. You know how before you had kids, you knew exactly how to raise kids? Did anyone have that? And if you you didn't have it then, you had it like as after you have kids, all of your kidless friends have an opinion about how to raise children. And at first you're like, yeah, well, maybe, yeah, no. And then you raise a kid and you just tell your friends that don't have kids, you're like, just be quiet. You know not of what you speak. You, you need to come into reality, have a child, and you'll understand. This, this is sort of like what happens. People get it backwards. They think they know what Christianity is about. But until you really get into the Bible, until you start chewing on this book, the perception that we give to the public is one of Christianity being do's and don'ts. Christianity is a game of following the right rules, and then God is happy with you. If you don't follow the right rules, then God is very, very upset. But that's not what the Bible teaches, and that's what we're going to get into today. So we're going to read, I'm going to read through the whole passage, so follow along as best you can, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, 
Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and traditions and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. May God bless the reading of his word. So today, this is a big passage in Colossians because we're ending the indicative part. We're ending the part where Paul says, this is what Jesus has done, and then next week it's going to flip gears and it's going to pour into heavily because of what Jesus did. Here's how we should live. But in the very end of this, Paul presses against something that is very, very much a danger in the modern church, just as it was in the Colossian church. So if I were to ask, you don't need to answer, but in your head, I want you to come up with a couple answers. What is the chief enemy of the gospel? So if you're new here, we use the word gospel a lot. It refers to the good news of Jesus, that he came, he died for the forgiveness of sins. And if you come to him by faith, you are forgiven. So if I were to ask you what the chief enemy of the gospel is, as I've asked some people from time to time, people tell me all sorts of answers. You know, some people say, well, the enemy of the gospel is sin. Well, that, that may be true. Some people say the enemy of the gospel must be Satan. He's a being. He's, he embodies evil. He's the father of lies. That, that may be true in some sense, but I think what is the chief enemy of the gospel, the good news of God's grace, is something that Jesus got really, really, really mad at. That was legalism. It's a word we use here a lot because a lot of us struggle with it, including me. Legalism is simply this. Setting a bar of your own rules and believing that if you follow those rules, then you have the approval and acceptance that you're craving. And if you don't follow them, then you wallow in guilt and shame and you beat yourself up. Legalism, however, is the, is the only thing that, that Jesus regularly got mad at. When you think about the things that Jesus got mad at, he only made a whip one time, and that was for greed. And then every other time he got mad with his words, he was mad at the religious leaders. Every other time when he was slinging the most uh, vitriolic, angry type words, the words that were calling people out, it was always the religious leaders. He called them whitewashed tombs. That's a name that I don't want to ever have on my resume, a whitewashed tomb. Because that means you're dead on the inside and you look shiny on the outside. And I know probably a lot of us feel that way some days. That's how I feel today. I feel dead on the inside, even though I took a shower this morning. But when Jesus came at the religious leaders, he said, you're whitewashed tombs, you're a brood of vipers. When Jesus came to the religious leaders, he said, woe are you who do this and this and this, basically saying, woe are you who put these heavy burdens on people and you don't even keep them yourself. Legalism is behavior divorced from belief. Legalism is the obligation to do more divorced from God's declaration in Jesus that all that you need is done in Jesus. Legalism is rules minus relationship. Legalism is Jesus plus something. Christianity plus anything will always lead you down a difficult path. Whether you're trying to get the approval of the world or of God, legalism says it depends on you. If you perform, you'll be accepted. If you don't perform, you will be rejected. And what Paul is getting at here is the Colossians church struggle because people are putting on regulations to the Colossian church. He says right there in verse uh, 16, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had people pass judgment on me for questions of food and drink. 
It is a very interesting thing the way we have sort of ignored aspects of the Bible. Now here's what I'm not advocating. I'm not saying that you can go and do whatever you want with food and drink. Because there, there should be some guidelines, right? Like if we were all, if we were the most drunken church, that would mostly be a bad thing. I, I wouldn't be like super pumped about it if people were like, oh, where are you the pastor? And I'd be like, uh. But, but I need you to know that Jesus has freed us from people questioning us in regards to food or drink. And, and praise the Lord, because as many of you know, I love bacon. And there are, there are religions that don't allow their constituents to eat bacon. And I know that you're thinking, well, why is this a big deal? Here's why it's a big deal. A, I love bacon. B, it's a big deal because they're creating rules and systems that say, if you follow these, then you'll be accepted. And if we go to like the practical one uh, here in the South, there are a few varieties of churches. Some are the non-drinking types of churches. If you drink, you are definitely far from God. That's what some churches believe, that, that it's the devil's liquid. Now, I don't know what they do with the passage about Jesus making wine. I don't know what they do with a bunch of those passages, but that's the general belief. Paul here is saying, look, these things that people are holding judgment against you for, don't let them hold judgment for, against you for these things, for food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. There were celebrations that these Colossian false teachers were saying, you have to not eat this, you have to only eat this, you can't do this, you can't celebrate this, and if you do it all right, then God will accept you. And Paul is pushing back against this religious legalism uh, with extreme force. And he says, these are a shadow of things to come. A shadow. I, ha- I had the greatest privilege this last end zone um, soccer league. I coached a kid who literally chased his shadow. Uh, he was one of my favorites, and I, I love watching him. And the parents, I didn't figure it out for a couple weeks. I just kept wondering, why is this kid running right past the ball every time we're playing soccer? Because we had five, six, seven-year-olds, and this kid, he's so adorable. He'd literally be chasing after the ball, and I thought, I'm like, surely this will be Miles' first week to kick the ball. And he would walk and run right past the ball, and then I'd see him in the corner of the field, away from every other kid on both soccer teams, and he'd be doing something like this. And, I, and it dawned on me later, the parents said, oh, he loves his shadow. And I thought, no way. This can't be true. So then every day after that, every game that we had on Saturdays, one of the first things I'd do is I'd look up to see, okay, which way are the shadows going to be? And I would try to angle our team so that this kid wouldn't see his shadow. Because he never, he didn't like kicking the ball, he just loved his shadow. And I thought, every time I thought he was chasing the ball, I realized, no, he's literally chasing his shadow. And then he would do dances, he'd make funny faces at himself. Now, if we were just to like watch this from a distance, it was, it was a riot. I loved the kid, I kept, I kept him in because I loved watching this so much. It was like an adventure for me to see how it played out. But so many of us do this with religion. We chase the shadows and we're not actually paying attention to the substance. The shadows are are that there's bread that God gives us. So the Bible says in in Colossians, don't let people pass judgment on you because of food. But food is just a shadow. The substance is Christ. New moons and Sabbaths, those are shadows. The rest we have that is ultimate is in Jesus. When we enter into him, we have an ultimate Sabbath. When we go to heaven, when we die and we leave this life behind, we have the ultimate rest. That's the substance of which we live in the midst of shadows. If you've never thought about this, uh, I think that it's fascinating how brilliant God is that he would wire humans to need food and drink. 
I think this is incredible. I would have never thought of this, and not every animal does this. There are many animals that can go for weeks and weeks and weeks without consuming food. But the, the being that God created in his image, he made it so that we have to eat every day for the most part. Like some of us can go without eating, I, I get that. But for the most part, we have to eat every day. We get the hunger pains. We have to drink some types of liquids every day or our body starts to shrivel up. I love that God did that because it's a shadow of so much that Jesus puts out in the New Testament. We have to eat bread to live, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. We have to have water to live, and Jesus said, I will be a living spring within you. So that every time we eat, every time we drink a glass of water, it's a parable that God is trying to say, look, you are the creation. I am the creator. Depend on me. Lean on me the same way that you lean on food. And I don't know about you, but that's, for me, a huge thing. Because I lean on food. Not only do I lean on food, I love sharing food with people. I love, I love sitting down and having a meal with somebody. Whether it's even a small meal. If you give me a scone and like three cups of coffee, that's a date. I'm ready to go. This is, this is a good time because there's something about sitting down with somebody and sharing a meal where you're both in that moment reminding each other that I am a created being and I need to be sustained by a creator. I need to be sustained by somebody who provides for my needs. And this is Christ. He is the substance of all of these shadows that religious people try to put onto us as these extra bonus things that we have to do in order to be approved of. This, this gets uh, only more dangerous. Paul, I think, is getting pretty mad at this point because he says, first, let no one pass judgment on you. And then he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So let no one disqualify you. The reason no one can disqualify you is because you are qualified by what Jesus did for you. That's the reason no one can disqualify you. That's the reason that nobody can pass judgment on you. Because all of the judgment that you deserved was put on Jesus. And all of the disqualification that your life represented was put onto Jesus. So now nobody can come to you and say you're disqualified. And that word there, it's probably not a word that you hear very often. It's a stained glass churchy word, insisting on asceticism. That has to do with self-denial. Now Paul was very good at denying himself. But he's letting this church know, let no one disqualify you insisting on it. Just because you're self-controlled doesn't mean that you're closer to God. Just because you can manage your life doesn't mean that you're a better Christian than other people. Because, let's be honest, right now, all of us in this room know at least one type A personality, right? Okay, so the one who laughed, they're probably married to one, or they are one. Because the type A people, they can literally manage their whole life with self-control and unholy angst. They have planners for when they eat. I have friends that literally plan out their restroom breaks. I told them they need a life. They need to really think about their choices they're making. But, but there's people like that, and they can plan out everything. Now, I, as far as asceticism goes, this idea of like self-deprived things so that I can grow spiritually, I am all for that. I'm a huge fan of fasting. I, I think it's a brilliant thing that God created because it helps us to remember that our flesh is weak and we need something beyond food in order to live eternally. So, so I'm for asceticism, but don't ever hear me say that if you do something, then God will approve of you more. If you are in Christ Jesus and you believe in him, that he died for your sins, no matter what you do for the rest of your life, you are loved by God. 
There is not an act of anger against you. He's not pressing against you with judgment because all the judgment you deserve was on him. Everything that happens in your life is from God's mercy if your life is hid in Jesus Christ. If you fast, that can be good. But just because you fast, it doesn't mean God loves you more. And I'm going to take this a step further. If you read your Bible, that's really good because you get to know Jesus. If you don't read your Bible, don't beat yourself up because Jesus still died for you. God still loves you because of what Jesus did. And I've heard people say, well, if, you, if you're not having a daily quiet time, if you're not reading your Bible and in prayer, then, you know, are you really saved? Do you ever, you know, and I tell people, look, for the majority of Christian history, the majority of people could not read. I don't know if you realize that or not, but it is not until recently that the majority of us have the amount of uh, competency to read God's word. And if we're being honest, sometimes we read this and we're so far removed from the history of the Jewish people and God's people, it still doesn't make sense. It's still like, okay, wait a second. What is this word? Why, what's going on here? What's the background with this church? Why is the author talking about this? Because it's a difficult book. It's a dense book. And even Peter himself, when he's writing in, in his books, he says that Paul is difficult to understand. So Peter, one of the apostles, one of Jesus' right-hand men, said, when I read when I read Paul, I get confused by that guy. So if you read the book of Romans or the book of Colossians and you're finding yourself lost and confused, know that you're in decent company. The same guy that walked on water toward Jesus and then started sinking, he's in your company. He said the Bible can be difficult. So, so I don't want to push that on you to say, if you read the Bible, then you're loved more. If you pray, then you're loved more. I want the simple truth of the gospel to reign over your life. If you come to Jesus and believe that he is all that you need and did all that you needed before God the Father, then you're loved and accepted no matter what. If you fail a thousand times, you're loved and accepted no matter what. If you come to Jesus and then sin within the next 30 seconds, you're still forgiven. And, and this is true not just for this brand of re religious Christianity, but if you go to other versions of Christianity, other tribes, there, there are many practices that are insisted upon in order to be accepted and received. If you go uh, to some of the other tribes of Christianity, you have to confess in a certain way. You have to pray a certain way. You have to be involved in a certain way. And if you're not, then you fall short. Now, I, I think it's fascinating that Paul hits this here. He says, let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you because of the asceticism or the worship of angels or going on in details about visions. There's so much bonus material in Christianity that's good, but it's not the ultimate thing. And if we make the bonus material what our Christian life is all about, things will begin to fall apart for us very quickly. If you think that you have to uh, come to a pastor or a priest or a bishop in order to get your sins forgiven, that's another bonus level. That's something that someone's added on. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because there are Bible verses about that. There are Bible verses about confessing your sins to one another so that you may be healed. However, however, that does not mean that if you don't confess your sins to somebody that you're not totally forgiven in Christ. And I think we forget that. Also, the worship of angels. This is not talking about people worshiping angels. This is Paul saying that the teachers, the false teachers, they were saying, enter into the type of worship that angels have. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in our past, uh, in this series, that angels actually want to be where we are. They look into our lives, they say, I want to know the mysteries of the gospel as it pertains to humans. Because we get God's spirit within us, angels don't get that. And, and these teachers here were saying, let's enter into this sort of supernatural, hyper-spiritual, angelic type of worship so that we can be closer to God. The closest you can get to God 
is the moment that you go to God and you say, God, I bring you nothing. I need you for my everything. That could be in your car. That could be here in this chair during a song, during a sermon. That could be sitting at a beach somewhere down in Sarasota with your toes in the sand as your kids play in the water. God created this entire universe. And if you come to him in Jesus Christ, he lives within you and will meet you and can meet you and does meet you anywhere that you're ready to meet him. There is not a holier place. This is just a church building. You are the church. You are the temple of God's spirit. And God wants to and longs to meet you in every area of your life. And this is why Paul's pushing against this. He's saying, don't let people hold these rules and regulations against you. Don't let people tell you they have a secret way of worship or a secret place of worship because it's all about what Jesus has done, not where you go, not necessarily what you're doing, but it's about who you believe in and trust in. Man, the visions. I love, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, so I, I got saved when I was just before my 18th birthday. And I knew kind of what I believed. I'd read through most of the Bible. So when I chose my undergraduate school, I chose a school that was different from me, theologically. So I chose an Assemblies of God school. I know that we have some Assemblies of God people in here, like, woo-woo, you know, speak in tongues and do cool things in church services. I wanted to learn about that aspect of Christianity. And man, I met some interesting people. In one class, I had a very, very charismatic uh, lady who was a pastor and she was all about the speaking in tongues, the worship, the visions, all about demons and Satan talking about them all the time. And then I had a conservative Calvary Chapel, um, like deacon or elder, whatever they have in their churches. And this guy was like, he wouldn't speak in tongues for anything to save his life. He wouldn't, he wouldn't put his hands up in a worship service because he felt like that was too extreme. So I had these two extremes here. And one day they're arguing. In class, this is what you do in Bible college. You argue about Jesus things, and uh, you begin to get puffed up. And, and I, was, I was not puffed up at all. This is, I'm never prideful, just so you know. So, so they're talking to each other, and, and she is telling this guy, well, you're not experiencing God. You, don't, you need to open your heart. You need to speak in tongues. Until you speak in tongues, you haven't had the baptism of the Holy Spirit well, this is a Calvary Chapel guy. For those of you who don't know, Calvary Chapel churches, they preach through the Bible like one word a week. Like they're the slowest moving sermons. I love them. I love them to death. Chuck, uh, Chuck Smith and those guys, they all start on the West Coast. They do great stuff. But man, they move like snails through the Bible. And this guy was like, well, I don't know. Like, show me in the Bible where I need to have this second baptism of the Spirit. And then the lady came back and then they went back. And I and all of my humility as they were bashing each other and talking about, you know, how his church is probably held back and restrained by demons. I was like, whoa, that's a little intense. I stopped everybody, and in all of my non-pride, I said, I got the perfect idea, you guys. How about you, lady, introduce you to the Holy Spirit? Because it sounds like you need him. And how about you introduce this lady to the Bible? Because she wasn't using it. And then I, like, dropped the mic. And I was like, yeah, that was such a good line. And some people laughed. They didn't laugh. They were just angry at me for the rest of that class. Now, here's what happened. They were talking about their version, their brand of Christianity. He was talking about his brand of Christianity. And then I walked in pretending to be the moderator, and I just dropped the mic and walked out. But that was just my brand of Christianity. Now, there's, there's no one denomination that has a foothold on the true Jesus because Jesus is so much bigger than anything we could possibly fathom. If we think we have a grasp on Jesus, we have just in that very moment begun to get down to putting him in a, a little pint-sized box. You cannot grasp the creator of the universe. 
You cannot understand him because there's not a box for him. If you think you understand most things about Jesus, you haven't been spending enough time in this book. Because what he is about is so massively big, so massively forgiving, that he presses this love into our lives so that we don't become prideful, arrogant, puffed up people like the Colossian church was becoming. It is so easy to become arrogant and puffed up and prideful. I'm more right than most of you all the time, just letting you know. And you think that about yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't believe what you believe. But you walk into every conversation thinking, we all do, thinking that we are right. Whether it's a marital conversation, whether it's a coworker conversation, it is very rare to meet a person that walks into a conversation and thinks, maybe I could be wrong. Just maybe. I mean, try it out one day. If you, if you think you do that, just, just try it out. Go into some serious conversation. The next time you get in an argument with your spouse, your, your child, whatever, just go into that conversation, and before you say a word, say, I need to remember that I could be wrong about this. I need to remember that I could be wrong. Because chances are likely we are more wrong than we ever thought we were. And I know nobody wants to admit that. I only admit it about past versions of myself. That's how I do it. So I say every few years I look back at what I was and I think that guy was an idiot. And I've done that enough times to where now I'm always wondering, like, am I being an idiot right now? Because like every three years it happens. Every three years I look back at three years ago me and I think, what was that kid thinking? And there, the pattern is there. So I don't think it's ever going to stop. I think I'm going to be 65 and I'm like, dude, 60-year-old me? That guy was foolish. 70. 75. I don't think it ever stops. And I've asked some people, I've said, hey, has this ever stopped for you? Like some of my more honest friends are like, no, man. Like I don't even know how I got through life when I was in my 30s. And they talk about 30s like as being young. I'm like, that's when I was, in my, when I was a baby in my 30s. Like, you know, when I was a baby in my 30s. But this is, this is what we do. We have a sense of rightness about ourselves. And it only makes, uh, exacerbates all the problems in our lives. Because when we are right, all that is is an external version of legalism. We said, here's all the right things, and if I do all the right things, and if I'm the right person, then I am accepted. And what we don't realize is that by setting up those rules, by always approaching God, and by approaching others with this standard that I am right, most likely, we're already setting up this fake legalism to get the approval that we need. We're already setting up this system and structure that says, if I can just be right all the time, then I'll finally be accepted and loved the way that I want to be whether it's with my spouse, whether it's with my kids. And I'll tell you what, for me, it's easy to be wrong with my wife. It's so much easier for me to tell my wife, I'm sorry I was wrong, because I've been practicing it for a long time, and I've been wrong a lot. It's really hard to be wrong with, like, a coworker or my children. The first time I had to repent to one of my kids, that was tough. When I had to sit down and say, Dad was wrong, I'm broken, I need Jesus. But the good news about that is that every time we admit that we're wrong, it's another opportunity to point that whole uh, situation back toward Christ. Whether it's with your spouse, your coworker, your kids, you get to say, I'm broken, I need Jesus. Because what I try to do too often is I try to be Jesus for my kids. I try to be Jesus for my soccer team. I try to be Jesus for my wife. And in case you can't tell, I'm not Jesus. I sin much more than he ever sinned because he never sinned. And I sin all the time. Yet, I try in my own strength to say, I will save you, I will rescue you, I will protect you, I will be your security, I will be your approval and love. And I let all of them down 
quite regularly. Now, I'm getting better at it, but it's only by the power of Christ in me because I can now approach life with the sense of I might not be right. And it's uh, very freeing to have that in your life. If you can approach conversations with that attitude of I might not be right, it changes everything. Because every time you say that, and I don't know why it doesn't work the other way, but I found that it works much more, um, much more efficiently from a man to a woman than from a woman to a man. When if, if men, if you approach a, a girl, whether it's a coworker or a wife, and you say, I might not be right, for some reason, it like melts their heart. And you score romance points, it's just all good news. So, so just keep that, that's a freebie for me to you. Um, just try saying that right before a big fight. I might not be right, I love you, I might not be right, okay, let's talk about it. So here's what Paul goes on to say. After this puffed up, after this thing where he's saying, don't let people force these things upon you, you're free in Christ. He says, if with Christ, verse 20, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? I don't want you guys to submit to made-up, to man-made regulations. I don't want you to do it. It's only going to damage your life. It's only going to take you down a path that leads to you being in prison, that leads to you having more burdens on you that you don't need to have because life has enough burdens as it is. As soon as you get out of high school, you have to start adulting. As soon as you start adulting, you realize bills, they're not fun. As soon as you start adulting, you realize all the things that your mom and dad paid for, right? Did anyone have that sort of high, uh, epiphany? I remember when I, I knew everything, my mom was not the smartest person in the world because I was the smartest person. That lasted from like 17 until like 23, until I had to grovel back to my mom and say, Mom, I need help with my car insurance. Like single mom, I'm like, please help me. Life is so hard. I can't afford my cell phone. Back then it was like the Nokia brick, so they only cost like 20 bucks a month. It was bad. But, but I had to come back around to that point. I had to come back around uh, to where I could finally say, okay, mom, you knew what's right. I didn't know what's right. And I think for many of us in our Christian walk, we need to come back around and escape the man-made ways and say, okay, God, I've been living my Christian life as if these are the main thing but these are not the main thing. Reading my Bible is not the main thing. Being in a small group is not the main thing. Attending a church service on Sunday is not the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. And that's all that there is. That's the only main thing. And if you go to other churches, um, I, I almost wish, I was thinking about this the other day, because Jared made this beautiful sign just says Jesus. It's all big. And I was thinking, what if a church, what if a church didn't get to choose which sign they made, but what if what they talked about most was automatically put up on their stage magically every week? What would that look like? Would it be guilt for some churches? Would it be money for some churches? Would it be behave good for some churches? What would it be? And my hope, my prayer is that it's always this. Like eventually we're going to get rid of the Jesus sign because I told Jared this is going to be on my roof next year for Christmas. But, um, but what if this was what the chapel always exuded? What if this is what the chapel always represented? And I'm terrified for the day that somebody walks away from here and they feel like we don't lift up and point to and connect to Jesus. I would weep and grieve if someone thought this church is all about this type of person, being good, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not me. That's not what this church is about. This church is about wretched sinners like me and you in need of a loving God who sent his son Jesus to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven forever, so that we don't have to submit to these regulations. Paul said, if you died to them, why are you going back to them? 
You don't go back to things that you died to. If, if you're dead, it's done. It's over with. I don't know if you guys understand how death works, but it's a finality. There's an end to one way of living, and there's a beginning to a new way of life. And, and I, I joke around all the time that I really, really want to be with Jesus. And usually people at first, they think, ah, he's joking. Like, no, I really, really want to go be with Jesus. And right now, I'm, I got this little cold thing going on, and I was standing outside before service, and my, my joints are achy. I don't know, everyone that's like over my age is like, well, welcome to life, little kid. Um, so my joints are aching constantly. My knees, they've been aching since my son's birthday party when we went to this silly trampoline park, and somebody talked me into jumping. There's no business jumping once you're in your mid-30s. It's over. Because um, I jumped in November, and my knees have not stopped hurting since then. Okay, this is how bad I'm getting. Um, so I got this, these aches. My back hurts all the time. I'm like hunching over. And in case you haven't noticed, there's not a bunch of guys that are six foot six in their 70s and 80s because we kicked the bucket early. And I'm totally cool with that. Um, but, but I already feel like that, the old tall man thing. So there's this thing when you're, um, A, when you're tall, it happens. And then for those of you who don't know, I'm half Asian. So it happens to older Asian people too, where for whatever reason, we just start curling over. So I'm going to be this curled over old guy and uh, my, my joints are achy. And I told someone before service, I thought, I just can't wait. Like, Jesus, just take me now. Tampa has more lightning fatalities than any other city in the United States. Like, God, just use your aim. Just take me home. Because uh, I'm sore and I'm tired. And I love my kids. People say, don't you want to see your kids all grow up and get married? No, just my boys. Like, I don't want to see my daughter grow up and get married. I want to die. My wife has enough of a life insurance policy to float her to the next guy. I only gave her one prerequisite. I said, just the next guy's got to love Jesus more than I do, and I'm good with that because I don't want some bum raising my kids. I told you, this cold medicine is, is affecting me. <laughs> I don't even, now I'm lost. Oh, here we are. Here we are. I got it. I got it. Be because, because... We, we died to the old way of living. We died to the way of living. And all that death rant that I just went on is because I'm looking forward to the next way of living because I've gotten a foretaste of it so often now in my, my 15, 16 years of following Christ. I've gotten to taste. This is what it's like to follow Jesus. This is what it's like to be accepted. This is what it's like to find forgiveness because I know in my head that I'm forgiven, but my heart rarely believes it. I know in my head God loves me, but my heart often forgets it. I know in my head that God's attitude toward me is mercy, mercy, mercy. But my heart says, you just have to earn a little bit more because we're prone to this type of legalism. We're prone to wanting to put regulations on our life because we're prone to be in this culture that has legalistic attitudes towards so many things. And if we can check the box, then we're okay. They used to have those on uh, connection cards back in the 80s. Uh, in the 90s, some churches would have like, did you do your daily Bible reading this week? And I'm all for daily Bible reading. I love it. I can't go a day without reading this, but it's not because I feel obligated to. It's because I can't breathe without it. And if you don't have that sensation, don't say, God, guilt me and shame me into it. Say, God, help me see this for what it is, the oxygen for my soul that I can't live without because if it's just a checkbox for you, I gave money, I went to church, I went to my small group, I did this, I said my prayers, boom, 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 boom. Then all we've done is created a ladder that we can climb up and feel really good about if we checked all the boxes 
and feel really miserable about if we failed. And if you haven't gotten this yet as a chapel family member, I don't want you to wallow in shame. I want you to leave your shame at the cross because that's where Jesus wants you to leave it. When he died, he said, all of your shame, all of your guilt, you can leave it here. And so many of us are good at throwing it there right when we come to Jesus for the very first time or for those recommitment moments, but then we kind of sneak back over and we pick up just a little handful of shame and guilt and we put it in our pockets and it begins to weigh us down. I feel a little bad about this, but I'm just going to sort of hide that and stuff it down. And then all of a sudden we're trying to run the spiritual race and we don't realize that we've been creeping back and we've been taking on the old regulations and we've got our backpack of regulations on and legalism. We've been throwing stuff in it. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, don't drink this, don't go here, don't say that. And then we're trying to run the spiritual race and we're wondering, why am I moving so slow? Because the human heart is prone to wander back to that. It's prone to wander back to this self-managed spirituality that will never give us the satisfaction and joy that we're looking for. I, I love this. There's a Presbyterian minister named Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he had a radio program way back when. And, uh, and this is what he said Philadelphia, which is the city he lived in, would look like if Satan took over. Listen carefully. This is what Philadelphia would look like or Tampa would look like if Satan took over. All the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. I thought, when I first read that book, it's called A Christless Christianity. I thought, that is terrifying. That, that if, and it, it sounds, and when you read through the context of this book, it, it's powerful. Because Satan isn't just out to get us with the sins that are obvious. Like, we know that somebody that's addicted to drugs, their life has, has gone a certain spiral downward. Because that's a, a symptom. So they, they do drugs, they're trying to mask something in their life. They're addicted to alcohol, they're trying to mask something. They're addicted to food, they're trying to mask some other pain, some other things that are going on below the surface. They're addicted to sex, they're just a masking of pain. And, and we know that. Those are easy to see sin things. And the easy-to-see ones, that, that's part of the work of Satan, part of the work of sin and death. But it's, it's very easy to see. You can say, this person needs help. You know who it's hard to see if they need help? It's hard to see the person who says all the right things, goes all the right places, and is shiny and clean on the outside but has no Jesus in their life. Because they look like what our culture says you should look like to be a healthy and happy human being. But I've met my fair share. I've met them here in the suburbs, wherever I was, L.A., San Diego, Hawaii, here, where people look perfect on the outside, and all you have to do is scratch the surface. And the layer of their life is uh, it's a thin veneer that peels right off and reveals an ocean of brokenness. That's because people have put up this facade and they've fallen for the lie that if they can look good outwardly, it maybe will change the inward reactions and realities of their heart. But that's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says, come to Jesus. He will change you from the inside. You'll finally be accepted in a way that you never knew you could be. You can finally take all the regulations and religious burdens and put them on the table and say, Jesus, it's all about you. I'm only going to do these things if they make me love you more and treasure you more. That's what religious regulations are for. They're not to get us into heaven. They're not to earn us the love of God in Jesus Christ. They're to help 
us to love him more. So here's the simple question. I want you to manage your life not by the rules and regulations that you do or don't do. I want you to manage your life by how you're connected to Christ because it says we're supposed to hold fast to the head who is Christ. In him, we are nourished and we grow. So I want you to take this simple thing. We've done this before, but for this week, take this very practical thing and say, is this activity that I'm doing stirring up my affections for Jesus or is it robbing me of my affections for Jesus? Purely an affection-driven system. I want you to say, is this thing right now making me love Jesus more, want Jesus more, pray to him more, be with him more, or is it stealing affections away from Jesus? No matter what it is, I want you to ask that question. I don't want you to beat yourself up when you start to realize, man, like literally only five hours of my 168 hours this week are for Jesus, but I want you to take that as a baseline to say, okay, I'm actually not cultivating a life that's falling more madly in love with Jesus. I'm cultivating a life that's distracting me from Jesus. That way you can begin to see and say, okay, what can I do to cultivate this love, to cultivate this connection to him? And it always starts with bringing God empty hands and saying, I need you for more of what I cannot accomplish on my own. Next week, Colossians flips. And we are going to leave this, uh, not entirely, but it switches gears, and we've read and learned what Jesus has done for us. And next week, for the last two chapters of Colossians, it's going to be heavy on, because Jesus did this, now this is how we ought to live. And I'm going to be reminding us the whole time that we need to remember to get the, the horse and the cart in the right order. Jesus said, done and finished. It is done. Your sin is paid for. You are mine. You are embraced. Now, because of that, you can live like this. Because our heart is going to be prone to think if we just do enough good things, then God will love us. And never let yourself fall for that trap or it will be a burden that you cannot bear. It will be a burden that your relationships cannot bear, that your uh, children cannot bear, and that your soul cannot bear before God. So make sure this week you're running to him and you're fleeing the regulations that others try to put on you, asking yourself, how can I stir up my affections for Jesus and get rid of those things that rob me of affections for him? Let's pray.